When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. I'm Robert Davi, and you're tuned into Coins. The only podcast that might literally set you free. Welcome to the Podcast Coins. I'm your host, Patrick McLean, and I'll be joined by a panel of experts, including Mark Yusko. Mark, how are you doing today? My name is Raul Powell. I'm sitting here today with Anthony Scaramucci. Eric Voorhees. Alex Mashinsky. My name is Nelson Ramirez. Sitting here today with Dan Helm. How are you doing, Dan? Here today with Roger Vare, still known as Bitcoin Jesus. And on this episode, We'll go over the fact that there is a war coming over the currency you keep in your pocket, and the open secret is that it started a long time ago. In our superficial world, it seems that in fact what determines who has the power boils down to a question of who controls the money. From the times of trade and barter to the Romans with their silver, to the Federal Reserve and central banks today. One thing's for sure, money controls and is involved in every aspect of society. Our homes, our transportation, our food, our clothes, our businesses, our schools, even our entertainment. Everything costs money. Every action, every decision we make, inevitably, in some way, makes reference to money. And it's an indisputable fact that in almost every country on this earth, the people who dictate the policies and make the laws that shape the way the rest of us live, well, they're the ones who control the money. Money just isn't power. Money makes the rules. Now, what if I told you there's an opponent out there ready to knock the traditional idea of money from its throne because it knows money better than money itself? This is where we meet our star player. Bitcoin. Bitcoin is power because Bitcoin, as you'll see, plays by a very different set of rules. Do you mind kind of giving a little bit of historical context as you see it? A little bit of almost like the history of money from barter to yeah. gold to, to uh, you know, gold-backed currencies? It's such an important question on when we start talking about this topic because we are at an interesting point in history in, in regard to this, this point about, about money, and, and particularly fiat money, uh, which we'll get to here in a second. So money is a pretty simple concept, uh, although it's actually very complex in all of its different forms. But the basic concept is you have something that you're good at, a service, or, or you have a good 
that I desire and I, you know, we want to exchange. And in, in the earliest days, we would exchange things, right? You might be really good at, at uh, building houses and I might be really good at, at catching fish and so we would barter, we would exchange fish for you know, construction. But barter has its limitations, right? You have to be physically proximate, you actually have to have the environment to do your thing, uh, you have to have the tools and you have to have the resources. And so people figured out, well, what if we had a, a representation of value that we could exchange for a good or service? And so uh, around 700 BC, which is pretty amazing, uh, the Chinese came up with this idea that they could create a paper version of money. And it would basically, you could deposit your coin or coins in some repository and you could have an issue of, of a paper note that would represent the value of those coins and that we could exchange. Why does money matter and why should we even care about it? The way I think about money and the role money has played in the development of human society and the world we live in today is if you think back um, on the way humans lived many millennia ago, we were highly localized, we couldn't travel vast distances in physical space, but also society could not travel effectively through time, right? Architecture was really the only enduring means we had of carrying civilization through human history, right? Physical structures. Um, and money for the first time really emerged in, in a world where humans were trying to spread society beyond the borders of their physical world, right? So how do we carry culture through space and time? Well, Julius Caesar really perfected this when he stamped his face on a gold coin. And the symbolic gesture of putting the emperor's face on a gold coin was really carrying the idea of empire and everything it embodied, not only through the Roman Empire itself, but through to all of the counterparties that the empire would trade with, bordering countries, bordering nations. And those coins have also persisted through time. So money effectively is a way to convert the energy generated by human activity, whether that's raising chickens or growing wheat, and to transform it into something durable that can travel through space and time. Now what happened is as humans became more mobile, as societies grew beyond these natural physical constraints and limitations as to how far we could travel, one of the things that started to emerge is, well, if you have a lot of gold, you're vulnerable to attack. So what did we do? We built citadels and fortresses and what eventually became cities around large repositories of gold, right? Of money, which became the most sort of durable form of energy that, that we had. And money and state became tightly coupled and state and empire grew sort of in, in partnership, right? You have a sense for what $100 is worth and what it can purchase and so do I. Uh, but years ago, it was a seashell. It was wampum. It was salt that the Roman centurions were paid in, which therefore the name salary comes from the word salarum, the word salt in Latin. Uh, there are coins that had the stamp of a political figure's profile on them. We traded those. And what you, what you learn in here about money and gold is that there are three or four components to it, but one of them is the trust factor, in terms of what we all agree that it's worth. The second thing is, can you move it around? Is it storable? Can somebody take it from me? No. Remember, people were carrying gold or diamonds with them when they traveled uh, because they knew that they could always trade that with other people. 
money is kind of this esoteric thing, right? Like we see it in this form of paper or physical metal or digits in our bank account, but it's something much more fundamental. Money is a representation of time and energy. You spent time or energy to earn that money and you can spend money to unlock other people's time and energy. So in, money is a much more fundamental uh, part of the economy than just this, this thing that we think about as government-issued paper and digits. It's, um, you know, and if we go even further, money also represents the measuring stick, the measuring stick of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial outcomes. So it's the measuring stick of who has successfully allocated capital to make a profit. You know, companies are, the purpose is to solve a problem for their customer. And if they do that well, they make a profit. If they don't, then they fail because they have, they have a loss and so they fail. So money is sort of the, the uh, measuring stick for outcomes in the economy. So money is much, much deeper. And I think not many people think about it that way. Um, but that's kind of the core fundamental, fundamental nature of what money is. Over time, people adopted this paper currency. And, you know, in Holland, and they had the dollar, which is where the American dollar came from. We took that, that word, and uh, we created ours, and we created the Republic in the 1700s. And what's really interesting to me about money, generally, uh, particularly paper money, um, it was always backed, historically, by metal, right? It was backed by gold or by silver. I mean, let's take the pound sterling, right? The pound note, uh, back when it was formed, uh, about 380 years ago, uh, was backed one pound note would get you a pound of sterling silver. You could exchange it for the actual commodity. Uh, today, you'd need 174 pounds of sterling silver to get a pound note. So that's devaluation of that currency over time. And, and I think you wrote that um, you know, average currencies last about 27 years, if I'm not mistaken. So fiat currencies, if we look throughout time, going all the way back to the Romans, the inevitability that they will print more money than they have and that they will devalue their currency is at a near 100%, including the pound. The pound is one of the longest running fiat currencies in existence. And the pound, if we look at how the pound has held value through time, the pound has lost 97% of its value over time because it there's more and more printed, and then eventually the pound went off the gold standard, so there's nothing tying it to anything in reality. Most people know that like the, the dollar um, was backed by gold and or silver at certain points in its history. That was the case up until uh, 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. And um, even after the Federal Reserve was created, uh, dollars were still backed by precious metals. Normal people couldn't convert the dollars into metals, but large organizations and, and banks could. So the dollar was still basically just defined as a specific weight of metal. And um, this was the case until 1971, when Richard Nixon essentially pulled off the greatest financial scam in history without anyone even really <laughs> realizing what happened, um, Richard Nixon essentially disconnected uh, the dollar from the gold standard entirely. So before this, the dollar was a specific weight of gold. After Nixon severed it, the dollar was nothing. It was just fiat. It had value by fiat, by decree that the government said it had value. So while most people think that the dollar has been around for like hundreds of years, in actuality, the dollar as we know it today is only about 50 years old. 
Um, Bitcoin is like 20% as old as the dollar at this point. Uh, Bitcoin is like half as old as the euro at this point. What is it that is problematic to a government uh, with a gold standard? What's problematic for a government is that a gold standard puts restraints on how much the government can spend. If you look at the United States and you look at the dollar from 1971 to today, it's not a great look. The dollar was buying $35, was buying one ounce of gold in 1971. It takes $1,700 to buy one ounce of gold today. And so we've crushed the dollar from a purchasing power perspective. Why are we doing that? Well, it's because since the invention of the currency, right, from 1776 to 1913, a dollar was worth a dollar. And for that whole period, now there was some fluctuation around wars, and, but it was pretty much worth a dollar. Well, since 1913 to today, a dollar is now worth a nickel. And so uh, the problem is the average person who's going to work every day and taking that money is unaware, I believe, that they are being stolen from every single day through this thing that they have been told to believe is inevitable and positive called inflation. Inflation is not inevitable. We don't have to have it. In fact, it is engineered precisely to steal wealth from the average person or the, the middle class and channel that wealth up to the top. In fact, today, right, 100 years after, or almost 100 years after the creation of the Fed, we have the highest income and wealth inequality in history because inflation works really, really well to confiscate your wealth. It's a wealth tax. Under a gold standard, a government can only spend what it taxes and what it borrows, which it just has to tax in the future. If you, remove, um, if you remove gold and you have a purely fiat money like we do today, the government can literally just print the money as much as they want whenever they want. The reason that this is so insidious and which I would consider a huge financial fraud is that when the government does this, they're able to buy goods and services or pay out um, the services that their voters want. And over years, that money circulates through the economy and prices rise with time. But the government is able to benefit from the newly printed money before the prices have risen. This is basically something that no normal person would be permitted to do, right? If you or I printed money and went out and spent it, we'd be thrown in jail for counterfeiting. But politicians are able to do this. And it's disastrous. I mean, over time, basically, the, the US dollar has lost 98% of its value. And everyone kind of understands that prices rise every year, but they don't really understand why. They kind of think that prices rise because of capitalism or because people are greedy and, and so just prices go up almost like as a, a force of nature. The reason prices go up over time is because money is being printed and debased. Uh, from the creation of the United States uh, up until about 1913, general price levels did not increase. They, like a loaf of bread in 1913 was actually a little bit cheaper than it was even 150 years earlier. From 1913 on, the inflation starts getting worse and worse, accelerating particularly after 1971. And of course now, um, 
a loaf of bread is drastically higher than, uh, than it would have been even 10 or 20 years ago. This is a scam because the government is stealing the purchasing power away from everyone who holds dollars. And if you're a, if you're a sophisticated financial institution, you understand this and you can manage it. But if you're just a normal person, you're having a few percentage points of your money stolen from you every year without you knowing. People would be, I think, rightly outraged if every year two or three percent of their bank account just disappeared and the number went down by two or three percent. But that's not what happens. The bank account stays the same and the prices of what you're buying goes up by that same amount. And amazingly, that tricked everyone into thinking that nothing, nothing illegitimate was going on. So that's, um, that's inflation. That's why governments print money. For the average person like who, who he who's hearing about these warnings, but like they don't really know how to calculate it in their lives, right? It's more of a thing they hear about and it almost sounds like more of an elite term and inflation and you know, they might, they hear about the gallon of milk going up a little bit, but it's a little too slow for them to realize. What are some warning signs? If there is an economic tsunami coming, are they gonna get a warning siren and what does that sound or look like? There is no economic tsunami coming. It's a relentless rising tide. And when you look back, you go, oh my God, it's gone up further and further and further. Everyone waiting for the tsunami, if we didn't get it in March 2020, we're never gonna have it at all. So you have to realize that there's something different. So let me put it in the perspective for others to understand what this means. A millennial and a boomer, father and son, the father, when he was 30 years old, was probably, it was about 1980, 81. Then they had record low valuations for the stock market, a P of seven. Record high interest rates, so he saved money to stick it in bonds, made 18% or 15%. Record high credit on corporate debt and really cheap property. So the baby boomer had this huge set of opportunities ahead of him. And gold was pretty cheap too, but was going up quite rapidly. So when you look at the percentage of those assets that they could buy with their wages, we get a number. Cut forward to the sum, 32 years old, 2021. They can buy 60% less in property than their parents could for the same median wage. They can buy a lot less of the S&P, a lot less gold. So if, what are those things, those are assets? The price of milk must be about the same, but it's the assets. Why assets count is assets are where you save. Those are the things you own that go up in the future and you release the money from, and that's your return on investment. But a young person now can make a lot less investments than their parents could. That is what is going on slowly over time. Your share is becoming less. And that is what's driving the rich-poor divide. Because the rich all get access to this free money and can buy more of these assets that go up. The more they go up, the richer they get. The guy on the median income who's 32 years old can't own any of that stuff. Look, I'm old, right? I'm almost 58. And uh, when I was growing up, the average price of gas that I put in my car was 31 cents. Now, I visited my son here over the weekend, and uh, to get a gallon of gas now here, 
is $4.31. It's the same gallon of gas. It does the exact same thing. In fact, arguably, it's a little less good because now it has some ethanol in it, so it's not quite as combustible as it used to be. Uh, the gas hasn't changed in that 40 years. What's changed is the currency is less valuable. And part of the story of Bitcoin is that as well, is when we talk about Bitcoin, we don't talk about Bitcoin in isolation. We talk about Bitcoin priced in dollars. When we talk about the stock market, we don't talk about the stock market price in isolation. We talk about it priced in dollars. So when the nominal value of something increases, sometimes it's not because the value of that asset is rising, it's that the value of the currency you're denominating it is falling. And so it's that subtle, slow, again, theft. And what's really interesting is it, it's like the, the tail of the boiled frog. Right? If you drop a frog in hot water, it will jump right out. But if you put it in cold water and slowly turn up the heat, its muscles will relax to the point where when it gets to the boiling point, it won't be able to jump out. And that's kind of what happens with this slow, insidious devaluation of the currency. So again, the government job is to extract the wealth from the people that create the wealth, the labor, and they do that through this, this tax of inflation. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Now, do you think the average Joe on Main Street understands this, uh, this taxation through inflation concept? And if not, why not? Well, because they're not studying it. You know, the average person is working and the average person is focused on their job and many people are using they're not in the capital markets business where capital is helping them make their money. Uh, they're usually most people have their time and their labor and their physical and some of their mental energy involved in making them money. And it's not necessarily tied to capital. So they're not as focused on it. But uh, it's something that they need to understand if they want to get ahead. And it's something they need to understand if they want to prepare themselves for their retirement. The government's printing more money so it can pay back the debt that it borrowed with dollars that are worth less than the ones that they borrowed. Uh, and, you know, and that's a long-term recipe for a catastrophe, frankly. And what it does is it erodes the middle and lower middle classes. Um, the dollar, uh, you could take two 1971 dollars. It has the same purchasing power as 100 2021 dollars. That's fine for people that have assets because... Their assets have gone up in the nominal fiat currency, but it's not good for labor because labor never catches up with asset growth. And with 20 plus million people unemployed as a result of the pandemic, uh, you can see that frustration spill over into politics, spill over into anger-based populism and nationalism. Uh, yeah, they probably don't understand it, but they need to. Um, they need to understand it to protect themselves. A lot of people are, are rightly worried about wealth disparity. So just the, the idea that some people have so much money and some people have so little and that, that the distance between those groups is expanding. Um, it's a complicated topic, obviously, but it, it bears noting that uh, there are certain regulators like the SEC in the US that actually legally prevent non-rich people from investing in startups. 
Um, so there is something called the accredited investor. And if you're raising money, if you're, if you're a startup and you're raising money, you're generally only allowed to raise that money from accredited investor. Uh, and that means someone who um, either has a net worth of over a million dollars um, or I forget what the other criteria are. It's like combined household of 250 a year or something. Yeah, so, so basically you need to be, have a bunch of money or be making a bunch of money in order to invest in these projects. Obviously the SEC has done this to prevent you know, normal people from getting burned, so I get that, but they've made it illegal for poor people to invest in projects. Um, I think that's disgraceful. I think anyone, any, any adult in a free society should be able to make their own economic decisions. That seems like fundamental. It's paternalistic at best, right? The, the idea that if you're poor, you can't make decisions for yourself. So nanny government will make sure that no one gives you any kind of opportunities which might harm you. It's, it's paternalistic at best and, and downright insulting. If it's so obvious, and we talk about things like monetary policy or inflation, printing money, what's really going on with banks, do you think the average citizen is aware of this? And if not, why not? Well, look, I, first I think that they're not aware. And, and the government and our central uh, banks, the Federal Reserve, uh, do an excellent job at not explaining it to you, right? So, so I think uh, I'll give you an example, right? The Federal Reserve is neither federal nor has any reserves. So it's just called the Federal Reserve, but it's really a private institution whose job is to create money and effectively run the financial system. Uh, but it's not a government entity, right? It's not owned by the government or operated by the government. And actually, for example, JP Morgan is the largest shareholder, owner, or participant in the Federal Reserve. They get about 11 to 13% of the dividends that the Fed pays. When the Fed makes money, it pays its banking partners, its, its owners, a dividend. So it makes, JP Morgan makes uh, billions and billions of dollars every year from its ownership or participation in the Federal Reserve. So most people, don't learn about this neither in college or even if you got a PhD in economics, you're not going to know how money is created, who creates it, who controls, who is the invisible hand behind the curtain. You will never find out because it doesn't come in a manual when you get your first paycheck. Your, your paycheck or your dollars don't come with a manual that says here, this is how, how it's, the money is created. This is what the best uh, practices of how you're supposed to store it. You know, like your car or your, or your guitar, come with a manual, right? But, but none of these things do because uh, if all of us knew how bad the system is, we would probably stop working and stop depositing money with the banks. So what happened in the last 30 years is really that the, the Federal Reserve, the central banks all over the world have been lowering rates. Now they're either zero or negative all over the world. So your money doesn't earn any money. And on top of it, basically, your dollars are losing value very, very quickly. Most people pay attention to the consumer price index or CPI, uh, but really your dollars, 26% of all the dollars ever created were printed in the last year. And 76% of all the dollars ever created were printed since 2008. So you obviously lost close to 80% of all the value in your dollars just since 2008. And, and in, the, in the same time, your salary didn't go up, 
It's not like you're earning much more. You just basically, your purchasing power has dropped. Well, one of the things that's always really interested me about your story is you're kind of recognized as being one of the few investors that kind of got the, the 2008 crisis right. Uh, and at the same time, this is when Bitcoin's kind of born. Uh, do you draw any parallels there? It all really started around 2000 when that bubble popped. The Federal Reserve decided the only way forward was to use interest rates to drive kind of demand. And it was a massive debt boom that followed. That debt boom, as we know, blew up in 2008. And for many of us in the macro world, that was something that we could see. It was pretty obvious it was going to happen. I was one of the people at the core of that predicting what's going on. And many of the famous people in the big short were kind of subscribers of my research service, The Global Macro Investor. We kind of all knew it was happening. But people in the street didn't. So people would come up to me and say, well, why don't we know? And I realized that that information hadn't really got out there. And I realized that I had access to information other people didn't have. And it wasn't fair. And after Occupy Wall Street, the rise of populism, you knew that, that the power had to be given to the people. The democratization of information was vital. After 2008, I realized that the problems hadn't gone away. The same problems were there. And all the central bank had done was generate more debt by generating lower interest rates. And now they'd started quantitative easing, which is basically the printing of money to try and hide those debts. And it became clear to many of us that the next recession was going to be a big problem. If 2008 was bad, the debt burden was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So something bad was going to break. What was wrong was that money was being centrally planned in what were supposed to be free capitalist markets. And to me, that seemed very strange that you'd have a capitalist market where money itself was centrally planned. Uh, that seemed maybe appropriate for like Soviet Russia, but not, not for the West. And most people would think of money as if I hold the, the bill, if I hold the coin, it's my money. I own this money. This is my property. But who really controls money? And is this piece of paper in my hand really mine? What we're living through now is the most rapid debasement of the US dollar that we have probably ever seen, right? Since the start of the global pandemic, over six trillion of new dollars has been printed. That's over a third of the total dollar supply in circulation. And there is no end in sight to the money printing. And this is not a phenomenon that's unique to the US. I think many nation states were struggling with the results of the global pandemic and the economic devastation that has resulted are, are following similar policies. Um, the issue is when you hold a dollar, you have very little ability to control the monetary and fiscal policy that governs the value of that dollar. And then the last point, and I know that you're recording near a mint where money is made, uh, just think about the proliferation of the US dollar over the last six months, 24, I'm sorry, 26% more dollars in circulation, if you count the stimulus, $1.9 trillion going in now, that's an additional uh, 16, 17% more dollar production. So step back as a macro investor, you've got 40% more dollars in circulation in the last 12 months than you had in the prior 244 years. So that's got to have an impact. Somebody looking at that, um, your listeners, please listen to me. Go look at your bank account. Even though your bank account has mo not money in it, it has less money in terms of purchasing power than it did last year. The production of those additional dollars by your government has been a silent taxation on your savings. 
because if you've got the money in your account, but they produce more of it, guess what? Each dollar has less purchasing power. Banks are not your friends, okay? Anyone who thinks banks are your friends, you, all you have to do is look at your credit card statement or your bank account statement and see all the fees and all the things the banks charge you to deposit your money, to maintain your money, to withdraw your money. They charge you inactivity fee. If you do, even if you don't do anything, there's a fee for that too, right? So unfortunately, again, we work, we spend a third of some, some of us like me spend half of our lives working, right? Working super hard and translate or exchange our time for money. And then we put that money with people who basically don't give us anything back, right, for that capital. Every government over time inevitably promises too much than they can provide or goes into too much debt and they have to print more money and devalue the currency to pay off those debts. And the Roman Empire did that. We are in the middle of that, doing that right now, especially during COVID. I mean, we printed, what was it, 1.9 trillion just a couple weeks ago, and now we're talking about 3 trillion? 800 billion in 2008 was like oh, the end of crazy. the world. Yeah, that was crazy. I mean, that was a lot of money back then. And now we're just throwing out trillions like it's uh, like you're at the club. You know, it, it, it's just wild. Sometimes government spends the money to build, you know, roads or bridges or hospitals or schools or things like that. That can be tolerating, but when they go and spend it to buy guns and bombs and tanks and use it to murder people around the world, that's about the worst possible thing you could do. Uh, you know, if a, if a counterfeiter was in their basement printing dollars and then used all the dollars to buy a bunch of hitmen to kill people, you'd think not only is he bad for counterfeiting, but he's even worse for hiring hitmen to kill people. Well, that's exactly what governments do time and time again with their ability to print money. Many governments uh, feel like it's their birthright to be able to dictate taxes and incomes and, and basically spend money. <clears throat> but uh, again, governments are supposed to be operating on behalf of the people, at least in democracies. You know, I, I was born in communism, I grew up in socialism and obviously been in capitalism for the last 30 years. I've tested all three systems. And, and obviously the American system, the, the capitalist system is the best system, but it doesn't work for 100% of the population, right? today. A vast majority of Americans are struggling, struggling to to keep uh, their income, to create uh, a value, to pay their bills, and, and and I think that we need to reinvent the system. We need a system that works for everybody, and and what I see uh, cryptocurrencies and digital currencies is really as the fourth system, because you can take the infrastructure that is being created with cryptocurrencies and embed that as basically the infrastructure for society, right? And, uh, you can create uh, equal access, you can create uh, wealth redistribution, you can create a safety net for everybody. And unfortunately, again, China, for example, is ahead of everybody else in using the digital yuan to test what everything I just talked about, uh, but they're not doing it because they want a new society. They're doing it because they want to control their society. So the opportunity for us in the United States, in the Western world, is to invent this future in a way that is inclusive, that is uh, enabling, uh, again, universal income, for example, uh, that allows to create a safety net for everybody. So we don't have a society like we have right now, where the gap between the rich and the poor is the highest it's ever been higher than it was during the Roman Empire. 
I think I, I've read, uh, you wrote something in that there will be a financial crisis you project in the next, I think, five years, and that cryptocurrency is going to be ready when that happens. Did we just go through that in 2020, or something much worse is coming? Yeah, something much worse is coming, and there are certainly plenty of people that have been predicting the U.S. economy will collapse and the dollar will collapse for a long time. Uh, and I'm in that category, right? So I have to acknowledge that I, I did not think that the United States would be able to, that the dollar would be able to survive this long after the financial crisis of 08 and 09. Um, I thought that the dollar would collapse by, by now. I still think it will collapse, but I've been impressed by how long this house of cards has been able to persist. And that's just because they keep printing more money? Yeah, I mean, generally all fiat currencies decline over time towards zero. And the real collapse that the U.S. is facing isn't a slow and steady decline of the dollar value. It's that eventually there will be a collapse in the sovereign bond market. Um, and when I say eventually, I think um, reasonable chance within five years and absolutely will happen within 20 years because the mathematics requires it. The reason that the sovereign bond market will collapse, and by that I just mean the, the market for U.S. government bonds, is that it's a, a huge bubble in which people are lending the government money at a negative real return. They're currently giving their money to the government for a bond, for, for a, an IOU, that pays them back an interest rate that is less than the rate of inflation. So they're actually losing purchasing power by giving money to the government today. They do this because they know that they can always sell a bond tomorrow to someone else. It's an incredibly liquid market, the most liquid in the world. And so everyone who buys government bonds, whether or not they agree that eventually they will be worth much less than today, they know that they can sell them instantly if they wish. This is known as the greater fool theory in any other context where people buy something knowing that they can sell it on to someone else the very next day. And that phenomenon is happening in the US government bond market. There is no reason to lend the government uh, money for 10 or 30 years below the real rate of inflation. It doesn't make mathematical sense. And after that whole thing falls apart and collapses and people in economics classes are looking back and studying this period of time, they're going to be astounded that this was not understood before it happened because it's so obvious that if you keep printing money, the government bonds that pay you back in debased currency are going to become worth less and less and less and that you're going to cause that market to collapse. When that happens, I think all sorts of blame will be given out. And I hope that the blame rightly sits with the government and the central banks that are actually causing those policies to occur. Governments will always profligately spend, right? That's what governments do best, is they spend money. And empires rise, governments become more and more powerful, they become more and more concentrated at the top with their cronies, and then empires get so indebted that they have four choices. They can pay the debt back, they can restructure it, they can default on it, or they can devalue it. Well, they can't pay it back because there's not enough revenues, kind of like today, where we're seeing the budget deficit widen and widen and widen. They could restructure it, well, who's gonna take the deal? No one, okay? They could default on it, only if you do that, then you get kicked out, so they can't do that. So the only choice is to devalue. And when you devalue, eventually you devalue so far that the empire fails, right? The Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, every empire. 
And now we're seeing that happen, I believe, in the American empire, which is causing this great stress on the monetary system, which is what I believe led to the creation of Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency, different from a fiat currency, because a cryptocurrency has a finite supply, different from a fiat currency, which can be created at will. Ultimately, if you can standardize money and make the money global in terms of its standardization, it could no longer be subjected to the whims or the capricious nature of policymakers or politicians. And so that's something that would strike fear in the hearts of every policymaker, regulator, and politician. But they all secretly know that if that actually happened, it would be better for the world. It would lead to uh, less manipulation. It would lead to less anomalies in the market, and it would probably be better for lower and middle income people as it relates to their savings. A lot of people, I believe, assume that governments can prevent Bitcoin from displacing fiat. And so they don't believe there will be sort of a fighting stage because they think that, you know, they just need to issue a regulation and that will keep Bitcoin in its place. But they don't understand how powerful a system that can't be turned off uh, and which allows any person in the world to have control over their own value. They do not understand how, how powerful the system that is. And so the regulations will not, will not do much. And this means that um, eventually fiat will actually be challenged by the rise of Bitcoin. Is it that big of a deal? I mean, can you imagine things that would scare governments more than what's about to happen in this scenario? Hopefully, hopefully the politicians within governments can realize that while Bitcoin will remove their control over money, it's actually really good for, for society. I think most politicians are good people, even though they do a lot of bad things. And um, hopefully they will start to recognize that uh, just, as it was, just as it was important to separate church and, and state, for example, it will be equally as important to separate money and state. And th uh, they will realize that humanity has benefited from the system, even if they lose some control. But maybe that's a naive viewpoint. I don't know. If it's a fight, what tactics will, will be used? And really, who, who, is, who is they? I mean, is it yeah. governments? Is it also institutional banking? Uh... They, they is mostly governments and central banks and they can include large financial institutions and other banks. Um, large financial institutions can always embrace Bitcoin eventually. Governments and, and central banks cannot. Uh, it is antithetical to how they work. So um, I think most of the large financial institutions, while they will be skeptical or hesitant, they will end up participating in Bitcoin. Central banks will not, cannot, shall not, and they will fight it every way that they, every way that they can. The main tactic that they will use is to try to vilify the people that are involved with it. Um, they will say things like Bitcoin is only used for terrorist financing and uh, you don't actually need privacy. And if you want privacy, that means you must have something to hide. They will use those kind of scare tactics to keep the public from embracing a system which actually empowers the public. Hopefully the public will see through that over time, but I don't know. Institutions have woken up and they recognize that the world is digitizing. And if the world is digitizing, perhaps our money or the way we store value will also be digitized. 
And so smart people in that world are early adapters and they're moving across the chasm from the old world to the new world of digitization. And just think of the monumental impact of that. If 30 trillion dollars of wealth assets are located here in the United States and 5% of those assets move into the digital realm, that's a trillion and a half dollars. That's bigger than the overall market cap of the whole realm right now. Everything, every single part of the exchange, store, and authentication of all value is going to be digitized. And it's all happening over the next five to 10 years. Bitcoin will ultimately destroy fiat currency entirely. And that means that governments will lose their ability to debase currency and steal from the populace. They're not going to be happy about that. It means that governments will have to shrink down to the size of only taxing and borrowing instead of taxing, borrowing and debasing money. And we're on the precipice of, of governments printing trillions of dollars per week. Bitcoin only has 21 million. That's the basic value prop. What do you want to store your wealth in? Do you want to store it in something that's continually being uh, devalued or stored in something that is uncompromising, unchanging, and trustworthy? You risk money keeping it in dollars. That's a risk. <laughs> a lot of people don't think about it that way, but you are risking this money keeping it in euros, dollars, yen. So the reason that Bitcoin is unique is not because it is digital. It's a digital currency, yes, so is the dollar. What makes it unique is that it is scarce. There are only 21 million that can ever be created and that it is decentralized, uh, which means that it operates on a global peer-to-peer -peer network that nobody controls. No nation controls it, no politician controls it, no corporation controls it, and no single person or group of people control it. Um, unlike the dollar, which is centrally controlled by the US government and by the Federal Reserve Central Bank, which has uh, all sorts of restrictions and borders on it, which is used as a tool of political power. The main difference here is that you, the, the world is now presented with an alternative. They can either choose to keep using a centrally controlled, centrally planned digital currency with unlimited supply and which could be stolen from you at the stroke of a, of a button on a keyboard or a subpoena from some agency, or a decentralized digital currency that is borderless, has a limited supply, and if you use it correctly, cannot be stolen from you by anyone in the world, regardless of how powerful they may be. Do you think, and I think sometimes, uh, the hype cycle of Bitcoin is, is driven by pricing, prices go up, <clears throat> and sometimes when it's down, right, comes, comes the more negative press. Uh, for me personally, I'm not sure how sustainable that is. But I think if you look at it on the other side, that, that maybe it's not about Bitcoin going up or it's more fear of uh, current dollars you have you know, going down in value. And I think there's starting to be more of a general consensus with that each time the Fed prints money and we're seeing these price spikes of Bitcoin. Do you think the general population is, is aware of that principle? And if not, why not? I think all humans want to preserve value. I think at the end of the day, people work hard for their money and they're gonna go search to figure out how to preserve it. Is the topic complex? Sure. I mean, how many people know how their existing money works? But that's the beauty of Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin's monetary policy is easier to understand than the US dollar. The 21 million Bitcoin, that's it. I know that that's going to be scarce. And I know that more and more people will demand to hold that. Whereas the dollar, I know there's almost infinity that will be printed over time. And it's an easy scarcity sort of calculation for people. They don't, you know, people turn on their microwave, they use their car, and they don't really think about how it works. They just know the basic principles of why it's valuable to them. 
And so I don't think with Bitcoin they have to fully understand exactly how a blockchain works or anything else like that. They just need to know what value it brings them. And for Bitcoin, it's like a digital gold. You're able to store value in it. It can't be seized from you and you can transmit it anywhere you'd like. As you look forward, what keeps you up at night about Bitcoin or, or maybe some of your institutional clients? Well, I would say what keeps my institutional clients up at night is FOMO. They fear they're going to miss it. They're reluctant to jump in. I, I uh, can't mention who, but I just got off the phone with some very senior person at a very, very large bank. And they're like, okay, I have to get into this somehow, but there's a general reluctance here because I don't want to end my career if I get this wrong. Meaning, let's say that Asher and Anthony are wrong directionally about where Bitcoin's going. And let's say that Peter Schiff and Warren Buffett are right. I've, I've pushed my bank to go into Bitcoin. It goes to zero and now I've lost my job. The flip side is, my God, if these guys are right and I have no position in Bitcoin, I'm going to get dinosaured out of the situation. So I think that has institutions up at night, whether they should be in early adopters moving towards it or uh, is the right decision to be out. And I think that they're going to have a dilemma there. I always tell people to go gradually and own a little. And so I always tell those people, go slow, be incremental. Uh, and then I think you'll get more comfortable. What has me up at night is the volatility matching the impatience of investors. Now, what I've learned in 33 years of being an investor since I left law school is everybody is a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. The minute they have short-term losses, they strike a match, they set their hair on fire, and they run around in a circle and they scream at their investment managers. And so Bitcoin has a huge volatility curve right now because we're in an early adoption phase. And I try to remind people that if you're in an early adoption phase, look at past Medcalf law participants. Let's take Amazon as an example. If you put $10,000 in Amazon in uh, its IPO, May 15th, 1997, 24 years later, it's worth $21 million, $10,000 investment. However, you would have had to subject yourself and your capital to a downdraft of 50% loss, meaning the stock went below its 52-week high by 50% seven times in the 24 years. So you would have had to stomach that level of volatility to be rewarded for where Amazon is today. You know, if you looked at Amazon in year 12, uh, well, it had a great run from 1997 to 2009. Uh, that's where Bitcoin is today. It's 12 years old. It's had a great run. Uh, okay, I don't want to buy it now because, oh, geez, you know, it's already up a lot. Well, let me tell you something. If you bought Amazon in 2009 and held it for the ensuing 12 years, you've made a 64x return. And so I think the best years for Bitcoin are ahead of itself as it continues to scale. But what I worry about is impatience. What I worry about is people getting juked out of it as a result of short-term volatility. Uh, and so you've got a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt out there. Uh, and I caution people, you want to put enough money in Bitcoin where it helps you. But the flip side is you also want to put enough money in Bitcoin where it's not going to juke you out of it if it starts moving in a way that you don't like. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, 
head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 